This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We return to our studios in Washington, D.C. this week, where we'll have a fresh take on the political scene in Mexico, heating up ahead of the July presidential elections. Plus, a walk back into Argentina's dark history. We'll have a conversation from Buenos Aires about the dirty war. But first, Vanessa Jesus-Gonzati has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The Colombian Revolutionary Armed Forces, known as the FARC, released journalist Romeo Langlois on Wednesday. The FARC captured the French reporter in April when they attacked troops that he was with on a mission to eradicate a cocaine lab. Three soldiers and a police officer died, and Langlois was wounded in the left arm. At a press conference, Langlois denied having empathy with the FARC after former Colombian President Álvaro Uribe suggested that on Twitter. First, having lived this kidnapping for 33 days, I would say that it was in very bad taste for them to kidnap me, an independent journalist. And then Uribe criticizing me, a victim of the FARC. Him saying that I have an affinity with the guerrillas is also just very bad taste. Langlois also says that many groups and countries need to unite to put an end to the armed conflict in Colombia. The Colombian Navy seized a homemade submarine that could be used for carrying drugs. Authorities say the narco sub has the capacity to carry five tons of cocaine and other drugs. Those kind of submersive vessels have become common among drug cartels because they are hard to detect from the air and on radar. This is the first one found this year, but more than 70 similar ones have been found in the past 20 years. Mexican police say they will provide more security to a firm owned by PepsiCo that was attacked with firebombs last weekend. Now about 100 state and federal police are guarding the distribution centers of Sabritas, a Mexican snack firm that belongs to the company that owns PepsiCola. A spokesman for Western Michoacan State says the attacks could hurt investments in the area even more. The state is considered the home of the Knights Templar, drug cartel, and officials say they are involved in the attacks that burned dozens of Sabritas delivery trucks and damaged buildings in Michoacán and Guanajuato. The president of Ecuador, Rafael Correa, launched a campaign to discredit what he calls the corrupt press. Last weekend, over a televised speech, Correa said that everyone should boycott the press by not buying newspapers he calls corrupt, such as La Hora and El Universo. He ripped apart a copy of the newspaper La Hora in front of the camera. Correa says some media misrepresent him. Both La Hora and El Universo have said that Correa violates free speech. He kept the anti-media campaign going through Twitter this week and asked everyone to join in. This is Vanessa Jesus-Gonzari reporting for Latin Pulse. Thanks, Vanessa. This week, we start with a conversation about Mexico, Manuel Suarez Mir of American University, our resident expert on Mexico, joins us again. Welcome back, Manuel. Thank you very much, Rick. Good morning. Good morning. You're here to tell us about the new student protest movement called Yo Soy 132, or I Am 132. What does that mean, and will this have an effect on the Mexican elections? 
It means that uh, on May 11, the PRI candidate to the presidency, Enrique Peña Nieto, went to the Iberoamericana University. That's a Jesuit university, mostly rich kids. Um, and In Mexico City. In Mexico City. And it was, um, uh, for the most part, it was a very civilized event. The students m asked polite questions, tough but polite. But there was a group that was constantly harassing the candidate throughout the whole event outside and eventually uh, bar barged into the main auditorium where the event was taking place and started questioning him about an event that occurred during his uh, governorship in the state of Mexico um, in which there, were, there was a, an incident in which uh, the people of a small town, very radical left, had kidnapped state officials and uh, they were threatening to kill them. Uh, so the state police intervened, rescued the officials, and in the brawl there were two people dead. Um, so these students, clearly with an agenda, were questioning him about that and harassing him and insulting him. And eventually they identified themselves, and this is a group of 131, uh, with their ID cards saying that they were, yes, they were students. But they, students I, from UNAM? Uh, students from, from the Ibero and other places. But I, had, I was in Mexico the last 10 days and interviewed several students. And they told me that these, this is a small group of people from the left who's supporting López Obrador and had an agenda. And López Obrador is the left-wing candidate of the um, Revolutionary Democratic Party, which goes by PRD. And Andrés Manuel López Obrador has been running for president for the, at least for the last uh, six, seven years. And um, he was mayor of Mexico City. And uh, he's uh, basically in, in the business of uh, organizing rallies. <laughs> That's his, his job. But this time... He was lagging behind the polls badly. Um, and he needed uh, some sort of a boost. And uh, he tried sounding very loving, uh, very less aggressive than in the past, uh, all of which failed. But apparently this has sparked a, a very interesting situation because this movement now has spread out. And they have a very, very confused agenda. Number one topic in, in their agenda, they are against Enrique Peña Nieto. <clears throat> but they are against Enrique Peña Nieto before the elections. They say he's an illegitimate candidate. So they are delegitimizing the election from the get-go. Now, this is the candidate of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI. We have significant listeners in Mexico, but not all of our American listeners track sure. Mexican politics. So just so we understand, this is the party that's been out of power for 12 years, but ruled Mexico for some 70 years as a dominant single party. Yes, it, 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 since its creation back in the 1930s, um, the, the PRI, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, was not really a political party because its ideology shifted according to the president who was leading. Uh, it was a political machine that was brought out every time you had an election. And therefore, 
Many of us thought that when they lost the 2000 election against the PAN, the Partido Acción Nacional, center-right. The conservative party, yes. Very, very Christian, or in, in Mexico's case, Catholic, um, that the PRI would sort of disappear or redefine itself. But it did neither. It did none of those things. And it sort of went along uh, having elections, winning elections in the states, in the 32 states, local and state level, and sort of survived. Then it presented a very bad candidate six, six years ago, and it went down to the third um, place in the polls. But <clears throat> this time around, they, Peña Nieto, who was the governor of the most populous state, which also, to confuse our public even more, is a go former governor of the state of Mexico. So we have a country named Mexico. We have a state which is around Mexico City, which is also called Mexico. It's very confusing, but um, Peña Nieto did a fairly good job in the state of Mexico. And a fairly good job that he's ahead by at least 15, 20 percentage points in most polls, yes? Uh, yes, except for one that came out yesterday. We'll talk about that in a minute. And um, he did a fairly good job first at winning the elections in the state of Mexico last year for his candidate, and second at not dividing the party when his own nomination came along. So he's been, you know, a, a relatively good candidate, except that he has been very, very careful, sort of not, not edgy in any sense because he's protecting his lead. And he's made a couple of serious blunders along the way, uh, but not, nothing really relevant to change an election. But this uh, strange movement added with other conversations I had in Mexico in the last few days, um, lead me to believe that whatever happens in the election, disregarding who wins, Lopez Obrador is going to claim that if he doesn't win, that the election was stolen from him. And he's going to repeat what he did six years ago, which is rallies and, and protest movements and so on and so forth, uh, with the idea of, of impeding whoever else won the election from taking over. What you're telling us is that this is not, as it's being portrayed in some media, as an organic, street-driven, youth-driven movement, but, it's, but it, this is actually a tactic by the left-wing party to, to delegitimize what looks like a, a loss a month away from the election. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Now, the, the, the even worrying, worrying part, more worrying part of this is that uh, Reforma newspaper, which... Uh, sometimes a panista newspaper, sometimes not. What we can say is that this, it is a systematically anti-priista newspaper. Um, this, this is a newspaper that, that was born in Monterrey. Um, it's very superficial. It's very yellow journalism in the sense that they show all the gory uh, photographs of the people that have been killed by criminal organizations and so on and so forth. They came up with a poll yesterday, which, which breaks all the other trends that we have seen, in which Lopez Obrador is only four points behind Peña Nieto. Now, th that means that if that were to be the case, that the trends are closing in favor of Lopez Obrador, meaning 
that he has a better chance to claim uh, a fraudulent election if he doesn't and win. And this was a national poll, not just a poll in Mexico City. This was a national poll, and it, it shows a divide that it's clearly happening in the country. Well, this is huge <clears throat> because this would have mean, meant that López Obrador comes up by 12 points, 15 points by, by that. That's what makes it suspicious. <clears throat> you know very well that polls don't move in, in that fashion unless something really important is happening. <clears throat> you see the map, and the center and the south are, for López Obrador, f- by a small margin. And the west and the north, the most advanced parts of the country, are against him are very much in favor of Peña Nieto. And in second place, Josefina Vázquez Mota. So um, you have a divided country in in this regard. What does it look like going forward? Well, my impression is that uh, Peña Nieto is going to win the election. Uh, It's exactly a month from today, uh, Sunday, July 1st, that immediately... López Obrador is going to come out and disqualify the election, uh, trying to delegitimize it and try to set up the conditions for a coup that prevents the election of of Peña Nieto to be realized into uh, his inauguration. Now, the problem here is that there is a very long period. Coup is a very strong word. I mean, we're, we're talking about a street coup, um, the sort of Arab Spring movement that we've seen elsewhere. Absolutely. That's exactly what he tried last time. A street coup and with his faction in Congress, a thug coup that tried to impede, to block physically the, the elected president from swearing, being sworn in, in, in the Congress. Um, and then they tried all sorts of gimmicks uh, uh, as a uh, proposing a, a government of transition, national unity government, blah, 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 all to disqualify the election. No, this guy is not, no Democrat. Don't, don't get confused. López Obrador is an autocrat. And by the way, he proposes change, but the change he proposes is getting back to the good old populism of Mexico in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, which was a very divisive time. In the country, and, and that is certainly a time that has fueled the left-wing party, the PRD, through its entire existence. Absolutely. And um, one minor uh, footnote on this: um, López Obrador is the only candidate ha- that has announced who his uh, uh, cabinet would be. Average age of that cabinet of change: seventy-two years. That tells you something. It does tell us something, but but more so, this tells us that the Mexican election is what which looked like a runaway for the pre and something somewhat of a snooze may actually be enlivening in the next three four weeks. Yes, it will, and it will be enlivening for the uh, disgrace of Mexico City's uh, inhabitants in the following months, in which there are going to be endless rallies and. Uh, street takings, and so on and so forth. Well, this program will be there for the election, and so we'll look forward to that. Our guest today, Manuel Suarez Mir of American University, joining us on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Manuel. Thank you very much, Rick. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. 
Arrogance is synonymous with domination, and domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Recently, we had the chance to talk to documentary maker Eileen Reardon via Skype from Buenos Aires, where she's shooting a project called Finding Mabel about the dirty war that still haunts Argentina. Here's some of our conversation. Well, our documentary project is called Finding Mabel, or uh, Buscando Mabel in Spanish. Um, we've been here for about a week and a half here in Buenos Aires, Argentina. We're heading to Cordoba, a different part of Argentina, in a couple of days. Um, you know, my, my parents are from Argentina. They were born and raised in Argentina and were young political activists and militants, um, progressive thinkers in Argentina in the 70s when the military dictatorship um, and the coup occurred. And they put their lives at risk, essentially, just with their ideology and um, wanting to have a better future for the people of Argentina. And a lot of their closest friends and allies began to disappear. And as we know now, years later, about 30,000 people ended up disappearing during that repression, uh, 76 to 83. And my parents came to, uh, to the U.S. Um, and just for those who haven't followed the dirty war, when we mean someone disappeared mm -hmm. or became a desaparecido, um, they, were never, they never came back. They, they're assumed dead. That's correct. It's it's a it's a term that carries a lot of weight to it, and um, it's 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 a very enigmatic word. Um, but it is assumed uh, that the folks who were uh, kidnapped and taken into most times uh, illegal detention centers and concentration camps um, had a collective experience, which did um, include forced kidnapping, torture, rape a lot of the times, and uh, and murder. You said your parents were, were coming out, and and this this is this is part of your family history. The the it is it is part of my family history. And having uh, been born and raised in the U.S. and not necessarily having a context um, or uh, my own history um, or history uh, lessons regarding what happened here, I started sort of searching on my own and. It wasn't something that we, you know, in our household really talked about. Um, but as I just became older and wanting to understand more about my family history and connection to uh, that very important time in history in Argentina, I just began to ask questions and, and started sort of understanding on a greater uh, scope, um, you know, the events that occurred during this quote-unquote dirty war. And I do want to say, um, I know I, I said the, the terms dirty war. I want to just um, talk about that for a second, if we could. Please. I say dirty war because it's, it's a term that's used a lot um, in reference to the dictatorship that occurred here in Argentina, 1976 to 1983. Sometimes, uh, you know, people talk about it beginning before that even. But it's actually a term that the repressive forces use to justify their actions by saying that they, in fact, were in the middle of a war and that they were fighting these subversive um, ideals and these terrorists. Um, and it just, you know, I, I think that the, the victims sort of took that term back, and whenever they use the word dirty war, it's understood that it's not their own term. It's actually a term used by the repressors. So whenever I try to, 
I use it, I try to put it in, you know, quotation marks so that it's understood that we don't, we don't um, acknowledge it as being a war. The, the progressive, uh, the, the, the victims of the so-called dirty war were actually the violence that they, um, that they, I would say, instigated were a response to the violence that was put upon them. And, you know, you can't really call it a war when it's an internal uh, military force fighting against their own people. So I just wanted to, you know, just say a few things about that. Well, let me, since we're talking about lexicon and terms, and that sometimes is is something that is lost in, in this, uh, the term that seems to be used now post-war from those who, who may have felt that those who were running the country during that time period may may have been um, they certainly received support from conservative elements of the country who were who were who backed the junta that that ran Argentina during that particular period of time. the The term that sometimes is used today, and I think it was also used at the time, is was el proceso that it was a process, and, and mm. I find that to be a fairly bland term for. <laughs> disappearing Absolutely. and torturing people. I think it's a, it's a short term, uh, the, pro, the el proceso, the process, it's short for the national reorganization process, which was, you know, their way of, of uh, eliminating the, again, these are terms that are, that are used at the time, the subversives, um, anybody who's against or, you know, contrary to their beliefs, but um, absolutely, it is such a brand, it's such a bland term, and uh, but when you say it here in Argentina, it's like it carries so much history. So you can't even use that word here without, you know, sort of like I'll just use it in a sentence talking about like our filmmaking process. And you say el proceso and it's just it carries, you know, 35 to 40 years of of history. And it's all very, very heavy. So it, it is very interesting that the, t- the words that um, that are used that, um, that in some ways sound so like vague. I mean, even the term that disappeared, you know, it's like, what does that mean? But well, it means so much. More importantly than terms, this story and this documentary that you're making is is about emotions. And your emotions, I think, are tied up in this. Can you share with us a little bit about why your emotions may be tied up in this project? Absolutely. Um, well, one of the, you know, the title of the film is... is Buscando Marel is this uh, woman who was a friend of my parents who was disappeared and was never heard from again. And when I was when I was born in the U.S., my parents named me Mabel. My middle name is Mabel. Yolanda Mabel, their friend, her middle name was Mabel. So it's this personal connection that I have to this history that, you know, on one side, it, it is a very emotional experience because on one side I feel so disconnected, you know, being having been born in the U.S., my whole life spent in the U.S., I've traveled to Argentina maybe twice my whole life with my family and and just wanting to connect on a human level with with a, a person, with a community, uh, with an experience that I feel so disconnected from. So in that sense, it was really emotional for me. But also in under, wanting to understand my parents. You know, I think so much... Uh, so much was not talked about growing up. And um, I, I just imagine it's because there's so much pain and a lot of memories and you know sometimes uh we have different coping mechanisms and um my parents are are political activists they they fight every day um the good fight you know as they call it um but they we don't sit around the table and talk about what happened in the you know 
in the dictatorship in Argentina. It wasn't something that I really understood. So in taking this journey and trying to understand, you know, the, the very elemental things that make my parents who they are. And I just, every day I understand them more. And I, to me, that's very, um, that's very meaningful to me on a personal level. So you're searching for Mabel, and we know that you won't find her. You're searching right. for her spirit then? Yes. It's a way of, you know, and this is something that we've come across, we talked about before, and we're really understanding now is, like you said, you know, we're searching for her spirit, finding uh, buscando a Mabel, finding Mabel is it's not about uh, you know it, it's a, not about finding the actual person. I think it's very naive to um, to assume that that's going to be part of the process. But um, it's about bringing bringing back to life um, her ideals so that we can understand. I mean, she was 19 when she was kidnapped, so um, it's a it's a way of, of bringing her voice to to life. Uh, understanding who she was, not only politically and what her ideals were as, you know, as a, as a militant, but who she was as a person. You know, we really do, we want to know what she liked to do, what kind of music she liked to listen to, what she did with her friends, what was her, what were her favorite things. You know, we want to know, we want to understand her on a human level. So absolutely, it's about finding her spirit, uh, hoping to, on some way or another, bring her, uh, her, her spirit back to life in some way and just remembering her and getting to know her. I know documentaries take a long time to make. Uh, if I'm going to a theater, if I'm going to watch something on YouTube, when can we expect to see a finished product from this? Um, we're hoping that by mid-2013, uh, uh, something will will be available. We are getting right into editing in the middle of June when we return back to Los Angeles and we have a lot of material. Um, we have a lot of archival material as well as a lot of the footage that we're shooting. And this is our second trip to Argentina. So we have a lot of um, material from our first leg about it that we came about a year ago. So, um, you know, the rough cut at the end of the year, we're hoping to have something available um, in, yeah, middle, mid of the 2013. But we wanted it to be as accessible as possible, especially to a U.S. and international audience. Um, you know, it's just a shame that particularly in the U.S., having uh, a U.S. connection to, you know, the support of the military dictatorship that we, you know, we, and I say we because I include myself in it, um, we don't really know about this time of history. So I really hope my, my goal is that it reaches an American audience. And I've learned how completely uh, overwhelming and exhausting the process is, but we're, we're also, like, so happy and so filled, you know. So in terms of the filmmaking process, just how how involved and, you know, tiresome it can be. Um, but if you're doing something that you care about, it just keeps you going. Um, on, the other, on the other side, not just the filmmaking, but just the personal experience, like I'm really fortunate enough to be making this film with, um, with uh, you know, good friends and my fiancé is on this journey with us too. And just like how much of it, it feels like a, a community and, and I'm just, I'm feeling, um, you know, just uh, the process itself feels very personal and I think it's also because it's a personal story but I've learned uh, how how important this is to me and how important it is that I'm doing it with my family. Um, important to uh, document the history of um, one of your namesakes. Absolutely important to document the history of one of my namesakes, important to document the history of my parents, uh, important to document the history, the living history of you know what happens after 
something so terrible as what happened, you know, and and the it's important to document the, the people today in Argentina who are fighting for that truth and for that justice because it's a whole other movement going on now um, with the trials and and different um, activist groups that are that are you know out there trying to tell their story. So it's a living history. Well, thank you, Eileen Reardon, documentary maker, joining us today on Latin Pulse via Skype from Buenos Aires. Eileen Reardon is currently raising funds via the website Indiegogo.com to complete her documentary. If you have an interest, you can find her project there under Finishing Finding Mabel. That's Finishing Finding Mabel. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa Jesus Gonzati, writer Lydia Bayoud, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. The program is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs> <laughs>